Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Well, we've been exploring um, what we're calling broken signposts as part of our series by the same name. It's the things in our world that we know kind of point us toward greater meaning, but often disappoint us. Uh, or things that we experience that we know kind of have this, this larger meaning to them, but they often disappoint. And so we've been looking at these things through a Christian lens to seek to understand uh, like the ways in which they're broken, the ways in which these signposts can be mended, but also as a way of understanding and grabbing a hold of and, and hopefully getting our bearing on what God's activity is in the world. And so it's really a series kind of based on these huge themes just to try to give us a sense of what is God up to? What are we being invited into as we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, as we commit ourselves to living according to the kingdom of God? And so hopefully it's been helpful. Uh, First, what we discovered is that God's justice is restorative justice, which means that it seeks to restore people back to proper relationship with God, with one another, and with creation. We learn that love is not something that God simply does. It is the very essence of who God is. And this is put on display in the life, the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We also, last week, learned that spirituality, which is this hardwiring of humanity for worship, that throughout all cultures, in all time, all of humanity has had some sense of something or someone larger than themselves, the divine. And that has led, and whether we kind of reject that idea or whether we accept that idea, the fact is we are aware of the divine. Uh, And and so this also has led humanity into forms of worship that has really looked a lot of different ways throughout history. But as we were thinking about spirituality last week in Christian spirituality, what we learned is that since Jesus is the Word of God made flesh, God made flesh, then we are to center our spirituality on Christ. And then we also need a set of practices, a set of rituals to help us connect with Jesus. So ultimately where we landed last week is that spirituality and religion are not opposites at odds with one another, but rather they are teammates in helping us connect with the divine. This week I want to look at the broken signpost of beauty. The broken signpost of beauty. I want to begin by asking you what may seem like a simple question, but I think has many layers to it, and it is this. When was the last time you beheld beauty? When was the last time you beheld beauty? Was it a piece of artwork that left you awestruck? Was it a sunset, a waterfall, or something else in nature? Perhaps it was a song that you heard and moved you to tears. You know, I love living in Colorado. Um, I remember I I lived my whole life prior to this in Kansas. Any Kansas boy living in Colorado can call himself blessed. Amen. (laughs) I grew up in Kansas. The sunsets are beautiful in Kansas. Don't get me wrong. But I remember when I first moved here, uh, just being utterly captured by the mountain range as I was driving down I-25. And I thought to myself in those early days of living here, I don't ever want to lose a sense 
of awe as I drive down the interstate. Now, I want to look at the road, of course, but I also want to notice the beauty around me. And actually, that hasn't, that hasn't gone away. To this day, now 15 years later, I still find myself awestruck, particularly on the evenings a year, those several evenings a year when we're driving, and I'll notice the beautiful sunset in Colorado how the beams of light shine through the clouds, how the mountain skyline churns a brilliant orange or purple. It is all quite beautiful. The thing about beauty is that we don't have to be told something is beautiful. You ever thought about that? You don't have to be told something is beautiful. Uh, beauty is something that is self-evident. It demands our attention. We don't ever have to be told to admire beauty. Now, quick side note here for clarification. I'm not talking this morning about the physical beauty of our bodies. Our bodies are good, and they matter. They should be taken care of, for they are the way that we operate in the world. Our bodies are our way of being in the world. But physical beauty, especially in a culture obsessed with physical beauty, is an end in itself. It is beauty for its own sake. And what I'm talking about this morning is beauty that points beyond itself. Uh, artwork is beautiful because it stirs something in us and points us beyond the art. Music is, it can be beautiful and moving because it calls up an emotion. Nature can be beautiful in the ways that it draws us in and gives us a sense of something or someone that is behind the beauty. Are you with me? And so we all long to behold that which is beautiful. And I would argue that sometimes we even catch glimpses of it. That is the good gift of God's good world, is that as we live and move and have our being in this world and in creation, we find ourselves in moments where we are caught up beholding that which is beautiful, experiencing these, these divine moments of beauty. Uh, what some theologians have called the thin veil but that separates heaven and earth. That there are moments when the veil seems so thin that we experience the divine, that which is truly beautiful in new and fresh and exciting ways. And we have a real sense of God's divine presence, of God's divine love, of God's divine comfort. And so we live in a world filled with beauty. We sometimes catch glimpses of it, but isn't it also true that we live in a world of terrible ugliness? We live in a world of terrible ugliness. In fact, I would say that it's easy to become overwhelmed by the ugly brokenness of the world. There is a lot that is wrong. There is so much that has gone awry in God's good creation. And focusing on the ugliness can lead us into cynicism. And cynicism is the place that we might get where we believe that there is no beauty left. Cynicism has fully taken hold of our hearts when we realize or when we have come to believe that there is so much ugliness, there is no beauty left to behold. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been so convinced or been convinced that there's so much wrong with the world that there's very little that is right, so much that is ugly that there's very little that is beautiful? I won't ask for a raise of hands, but I will raise my hand. <laughs> and I'll say I've certainly been there. I've been, I've had moments of tremendous cynicism. 
And so as we think about beauty, we recognize that it is kind of this broken thing. Our, we, we catch glimpses of it, but we are, we're so easily overwhelmed by that which is ugly. It's very easy to be a cynic, right? And so it's a broken signpost. Turning to the scriptures, though, can be tricky. <laughs> Turning to the scriptures to, to learn about, to capture ideas about, to, to behold beauty uh, can sometimes leave us disappointed. Have you, ever, have you ever heard a pastor, a preacher, say that turning to the Scriptures, you can find yourself disappointed sometimes? Uh, here's why. Partly because if you were looking to, if you were saying, you know what, I need, to, I need to see what God says about that which is beautiful. I need to capture some beauty. So uh, you do what you were, maybe have been taught to do or trained to do. You go to the concordance, and you find that the word beauty has very few, if any, entries in the concordance at the end of your Bible. And so you're like, well, what do I do now? Where do I go? Where do I churn? And so part of the reason is that beauty in the concordance is not going to bring up many entries, but partly is because we've been trained to read the, our Bibles to search for dogma, not delight. Are you with me? A lot of times, the ways in which we've been trained to read the Bible is to search for dogma instead of find delight. We've been taught, not, we've been taught to read the Bible for doctrine, not beauty. But nevertheless, I submit to you this morning that I hopefully we can find some beauty in the Scriptures this morning. For the most part, we have no idea how to read the Scriptures like a mystic who can see beauty in the broad sweeps of the biblical story. Instead, we're more used to reading the Scriptures like a pragmatist, looking simply for platitudes to attach to our lives or to put on bumper stickers. And so I want to turn to the Scripture this morning, and yes, I want to provide some insight, but mostly I want us to just simply behold the beauty. I want us to try to capture the sense of how beautiful this Word is. And so let me set the scene. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 11. Let me set the scene. Mary and Martha have a brother named Lazarus. Jesus is close friends with the family. He counts them all as friends. Lazarus becomes very ill, so Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, confident that Jesus, if he could be there, he could help Lazarus and heal him. The problem is Lazarus is in Judea. Judea is where Jesus just was, and they tried to stone him to death. And so certainly going back there would pose quite literally a threat to Jesus' life. Thomas, the famous disciple, actually admits as much when he says, let's go too. Let's join Jesus, go to Judea. And then he says this, and let's die with Jesus. This is the scene. I mean, to, to go to Judea to help Lazarus would be not only a threat on Jesus' own life because the crowds there are so worked up with his ministry, but also a threat to the life of the disciples as well. And so Thomas, before his famous doubting moment, says, let's go with Jesus and just die with him. After waiting a couple of days, Jesus actually does go to Judea to be with Lazarus. But by the time that Jesus arrives to Judea, Lazarus has been dead for four days. I want to pick up in John chapter 11, beginning with verse 38. You can follow along with me. You can click there. It'll also be up on the screen. It says this, 
Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. But Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing there, that they might believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, and his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, Death really stinks, literally. Uh, Early on in our marriage, Amy and I were living in a little townhome. One day we went downstairs to the basement and noticed an awful smell. Uh, We searched and searched for the source, but we couldn't find what was causing it, so we went to bed uh, with a stench in our nose. We woke up with the stench even stronger because it had made its way up the stairs and was now filling the entire townhome. So we went against our better judgment and went quite intentionally sniffing every place and corner of the home to try to find the source of what was causing this terrible smell. And our tired noses led us to under the stairs that were leading to the basement Apparently, an animal had died in there, and it stunk. Now, in that particular house, the stairs to the basement were enclosed with drywall. Uh, We were newly married and broke, and just figured, rather than tear up the wall or pay someone else to do it, let's just wait it out, which is what we did. (laughs) And the smell eventually went away. So, uh, Noah, I didn't have Amy's permission to share that story either. (laughs) death really stinks Uh, perhaps this is why uh, verse 39 really caught my attention Lord Martha says he has been dead for four days the smell will be terrible Uh, the stench of death is strong and in many ways it's that kind of smell that stench of death that actually frames this whole passage Uh, So let's walk through this passage carefully. Jesus says, let's take away the stone. This prompts a response from Martha, who is worried about the stench. If we do that, it's going to smell really bad. Now, some translations have Martha pointing out that if the stone is removed, then the smell will come. Other translations, like what we read this morning, frame Martha's words as she is pointing out how bad it already smells, right? And then if you roll the stone away, it's only going to get worse, The stench of death is in the air. Either way, the point is the same, that death really stinks. So there's the concern that Martha has. Okay, Jesus is getting ready. He's he's got something up his sleeve. He's like, this is going to be great. Martha's worried about the smell. And so Jesus says, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Now, the Greek word for glory is is the Greek word doxa. 
It means radiance. It means brilliance. It means splendor. And while not a direct translation, many theologians and those who study such things have connected this word to the word beauty. If you believe, then you will see the beauty of God. And with that, the stone was rolled away. Now, the attentive reader of the story will demand an answer to Martha's concern, right? As I read it, did this come up for you? Were you thinking about Martha? Did you also have the same question? The attentive reader will demand an answer to Martha's concern. Was the stench of death there or worse when the stone was rolled away? I mean, what happened? Did it stink? Biblical author, we want to know. (laughs) Inquiring minds want to know. I'm not sure what that's from, but that feels like it's from something. Um, Inquiring minds want to know. Someone will come up to the service afterwards and tell me what that's from, and I will thank them. So think about that. Um, Did the stench get stronger? We aren't told. At least we're not told explicitly. Instead of following up on Martha's question about the smell of death, John tells us that Jesus prayed a prayer of thanksgiving. So again, if we're really attentive to the story, this story is kind of throwing us in every direction, right? First, we want to know the answer to Martha's concern. Did it actually stink? We aren't told, and instead we're told about a prayer of thanksgiving, which in itself is also surprising, because we don't expect a prayer of thanksgiving. We expect a prayer of petition, right? We would expect Jesus, instead of praying Lord, thank you for hearing my prayer. We would expect Jesus to pray, please bring Lazarus back to life, right? We would expect petition, not thanksgiving. And this is where we get to the meat and potatoes. The implication of Jesus' prayer of thanksgiving is this, is that the work of new life was already taking place even while the stench of death was still in the air. I thought for sure that'd get an amen, and so let me just say it again. Right? The implication is that the work of new life has already was already taking place even while the stench of death was still in the air. There we go. In other words, all that remained was to make visible the new life that was already present. All that was left was to make visible the new life that was already present. And so Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. There's no prayer of petition because Jesus was already working a miracle of new life even while the stench of death was in the air. All that was left was to make visible the work of new life that had already been accomplished. Amen. It's a powerful story of resurrection and new life. It is a story that very clearly is a precursor to Jesus' own resurrection. But what I want to do this morning is make a, a couple of observations. Uh, that I think will help us in our thinking about beauty. Now, let me say this. I will say a couple words, but the irony is not lost on me, that I'm providing prose and explanation about beauty. Having already said that beauty should not, you don't have to be told to behold it, right? And so 
I offer these observations with caution. I offer these observations simply as a way of framing the story that will hopefully help us in learning to read Scripture to see the beauty for what it is. Amen? So let me offer these things. This resurrection narrative and the one that will follow in John chapter 20 of Jesus' own resurrection is all about new life and new creation bursting into a world framed by death. When we think about the resurrection of Jesus, when we look at this precursor story of the resurrection of Lazarus, it is all about the ability of God to demonstrate new life, new beauty in the midst of death and brokenness. And this, I submit to you, is the beauty of God. The very beauty of God is God's propensity and ability to take things that seem dead and breathe new life into them. Resurrection. When we are moved by something and we say, oh, isn't that beautiful? Or when we remember an experience or we recount a time in our life and we say, wasn't that beautiful? We are saying that because that thing, whatever it was, that experience, that moment, that song, that, that beholding that beauty in nature, whatever it was that leads us to say that is beautiful, is the very thing that is connecting us to the life and beauty of God and reminding us that it isn't all bad news. Let me say it this way. Beauty moves us past our cynicism, even if only for a moment. Beauty moves us past our cynicism, if only for a moment, right? I'm just thinking about this off the top of my head, so work with me here. This may not be perfect. I'm a parent. Parenting is hard. It is hard, hard work, right? You're like, I'm in charge of this little life, <laughs> and I need to guide and direct and do all the things and, and still have boundaries and correction and, and good discipline and all that stuff, and it is hard, hard work. And it's easy to become cynical about the work of parenting. But aren't there also moments of just utter, sheer beauty? as a parent, that moves us past the cynicism, if only for a moment, <laughs> to say it's not all bad. <laughs> In fact, there's so much that is good, right? And I think it's a lot like that. Those of you that aren't parents, and maybe that doesn't resonate quite as much, but the same is true for our experience of the world, right? That that, there, that we can kind of get lost in these, this, just this funnel of cynicism and darkness, and there's so much that's wrong, there's so much that isn't right, 
And then we just, what beauty does is it moves us out of that for just a moment and helps us to see that there is good in the world and the source of that good is God. Many of you know and I've said that this, this series is largely based on the work of N.T. Wright in a book by the same name. So he says this, N.T. Wright has this to say about the Lazarus story, quote, the beauty of the entire scene is that the powerful promise of new life burst into a world still framed by death. The beauty of the entire scene is that the powerful promise of new life burst into a world that is still framed by death. And the reality is that our own world is still framed by death. But the beauty, the glory of God is that new creation has been launched in the midst of it. And I think part of the work for Christians is to begin to lean more toward recognizing and seeing the beautiful things that God is doing in our lives and in the world so that we live less and less with a, with a cynical heart. Amen? Like that's kind, of the, that's kind of the movement of us as the people of God, as Christians, as disciples, is to more and more see the connectedness and the, the beauty of things and move out of cynicism more and more. But when we behold beauty, it moves us out of cynicism. And so the power of God brought new life into the place of death. But did you notice, and this is my second observation, did you notice that there is still work to be done? Um, I want to be careful to not go too far here, um, but this feels significant. But in the story, Lazarus came out of the grave still wearing the linens of death. So Jesus instructed the people there, the disciples, to untie Lazarus. Lazarus, alive and having been resurrected from the dead, still is wearing the linens of death, and so the disciples are invited to participate in the miracle by untying the bounds. In other words, there is still work to be done to take off the burial linens, that when Jesus prayed the prayer of thanksgiving, he was stating the truth, right? He was getting us in on the truth. And the truth is that the work of new life had already taken place. There is no prayer of petition because Lazarus is alive. So Jesus prays a prayer of thanksgiving, thanking God for the work of new life that has already taken place. He makes a truth proclamation. But as with most truth proclamations of God, it also comes with an invitation. Take the grave clothes off of that which is new and alive. Let me say this, church. We are not just invited to behold beauty. We are invited to be participants in it. Amen. We are not invited just to behold beauty. We are invited to be participants in it. New life has been accomplished. There is beauty to behold. And so now take off the linens of death and participate in the new work. Participate in the glory of God. Participate in the miracle of new life. Paul will actually, the Apostle Paul, will actually pick up on this kind of same metaphor and theme. He will say, you are a new creation in Christ, so take off 
the old clothes and put on the new clothes. Take off the linens of death and put on the clothes of resurrection. It's a way of simply saying this is who you are in Christ, that in Christ you have been made a new creation, and so now the work is to live into that truth of who we are. If you've been around Emmaus a little while, you've heard me say that before. <laughs> but this is the, this, that's, that's the thing. That's the whole thing. This is the truth of who you are in Christ. Now learn to live into that more and more. Take off the grave clothes and put on the new clothes of resurrection. Well, let me close with another quote from N.T. Wright. And again, I, I, I don't want to provide a ton of commentary because I just want us to see the beauty of the biblical passage. But here's, here's the commentary that N.T. Wright provides. Our human drive for beauty, for transcendent meaning, turns out to be more than we ever expected. It is God-given a signpost designed to lead us back to his presence. Ah, we sigh, but it ends in darkness and horror with the dust of death covering over beauty in thick, choking layers of ugliness. Yes, says John, but see what the creator God now does. He makes a way through death and out the other side into new creation, new beauty, and life. Amen. My prayer for us as we think about beauty is to experience the beauty of God working in our own lives. That we ourselves might become participants in the beauty of God that, in, that has done a new work or a work of new creation in your life. If you're here today and you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. If you are here today and you have not yet placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you can be made into a new creation. And then we are invited as participants in the miracle to say, how can I live in such a way that I become more and more formed as a new creation of God. Amen. Amen. Part of that process is gathering around the Lord's table. We here at Emmaus see communion not just simply as a, a way of remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus, although it is certainly that. We also believe that God's divine presence can meet us in this place as we gather around the Lord's table. That the Spirit of God is active in the, the ritual act of communion to meet us where we're at, that it might be a means of grace in our life, that we might be formed into God's likeness. And so my prayer is that we would come to the table today just with open hearts and open hands ready to receive the Spirit's work in our lives. Maybe there are some old grave clothes that you've still got on that today the Spirit of God wants to help you shed and take off. And he's inviting us to be participants in that. So let me lead us to the Lord's table today.